If you would, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 will be in verses 8 through 21 this morning. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do come to you. We come to you looking forward to hearing what you have done. We do not come to you acting like we have done something good. For we have nothing good. We are nothing good. We simply come to the cross where he who is good enough for us, we come to him looking to receive. We receive now as we hear you proclaim your word to all of us. So grant us the faith to receive it. Grant us the faith to believe it. Grant us the faith to live according to it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder what it would be like to grow up being a member of the royal family in Great Britain. We've been watching The Crown recently and it dawned on me, I was thinking, oh, what must it have been like for one of these family members, especially for the future king or queen to just live their whole life knowing that they're the next one in charge. It's a foreign idea to us because we don't live in a royal culture today, but then again we do. Our royalty is just a little bit different 
our royalty is centered around celebrities, influencers, politicians. The only difference is that you don't necessarily have to be born into royalty to be royalty. Now in our culture, you can, you can just be trending. You can work your way into it. And because of this, we tend to think this. If only I had that influence, if only I had that platform, then I could fill in the blank. That's the culture that our youth grow up in. That's the culture that our college students are drinking down. We think that if God was really going to work, then he would do it best through celebrities, politicians, or influencers. That's where we tend to put our hope. No wonder why we always tend to talk a lot about the latest musician or movie star or athlete or social influencer who has supposedly become a Christian. I remember the temptation for myself whenever I was playing football of people telling me and even thinking to myself, think about the platform you have. If we're not careful, or actually we could say this has already happened, but our world is reflecting Roman Catholicism back in the 16th century and earlier. Because the message that they were proclaiming is this, is that if you want to be a really good Christian, if you want to really be used by God, then go and live at a monastery, become a priest or whatever else it was. But don't be lowly. Don't be normal. What has this resulted in in today's world, at least for the church? Well, churches love to be more showy than substantial. Churches focus more on creativity than content. Churches prioritize more of the culture than Christ. Churches tend to overlook the lowly because they too cherish the exalted. We actually deny what Francis Schaeffer once said, that there are no little people. Here's what happens the more we believe this. Pastors will seek to be celebrities rather than servants. Pastors will seek a following for themselves rather than focusing first and foremost on helping people follow Christ. Congregations will only look for the next big thing and they will reject the small acts of kindness. Churches will feel like they have to be the next big, the big thing rather than focusing on the big truth of the gospel. We'll also tend to do this. We'll try to make everything about our public platform, including social media, look like we're something. Because if it doesn't happen on social media, it must not be true. In this mindset, if it's not measurable, then it doesn't matter. This is why corporate worship, according to the Bible, is not trending. Because we prioritize more about getting people in the pews. Visiting widows and shut-ins fails to wow people because we need to make sure we're seen in everything that we do. It's also why churches today rarely have prayer meetings because it's not measurable. You see, in this type of mindset, it's, it's a big problem because what happens when you don't become that big church or that influencing 
person or having that platform. At the end of the day, all this is is a system of law rather than grace. It is a system that says, church, do this and then you will be something. Rather than the gospel. The reason why I bring this up is that in our day and age, the way that we're going about church today, it is so opposite from this text. It is so opposite from what Christmas is really about. That the highest king has come to the lowest creatures. He is not sitting there waiting on you saying, okay, grace, presence, still water, be influencers, and then I'll welcome you into the kingdom. Rather, he comes to the lowly. He comes to those who have nothing to offer. And it's he who transforms us. That's what we need to see in this text, that the highest king has come to lowly creatures. But who is this king? Who is this highest king who has come to us? So look back at verse 8. I encourage you to leave your Bibles open because I'll often be telling you, look back at this text. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Here is the setting that we have here from 2,000 years ago. Is we actually open up on this scene, and it's showing shepherds. Shepherds were the society outcasts. They were the society rejects. They were the last people. If you wanted to start a movement, you would not want to go to these guys. This is not the way to go about it today. Why them? Of all people, why these shepherds and not even like the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, why not Caesar himself? God has appeared to royalty before. He had, a, he had appeared to Pharaoh and done many acts and wonders before him. He had he had shown himself to Nebuchadnezzar and even Belshazzar in the book of Daniel. You kind of ask the question, did God dial the wrong number? You see, but we need to see that God intended to come here. And actually seeing, seeing where this king would come from, seeing where he comes to and seeing what he comes for, that's what helps us see who he is. So where has he come from? Look at verse 9. We see where he comes from actually by what happens when the angel of the Lord appeared to them. The angel of the Lord was this uh, kind of this strange figure that we see throughout Scripture. And this particular angel uh, appears as representing God. And he appears to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now when this angel appears, this glory of the Lord, when it shines, what original audience, what original Jewish audience would, would realize is that this glory of the Lord is the glory that is found in the temple. The temple, which actually really began in the Garden of Eden where God's presence was. And then whenever man sinned and were cast out of the Garden of Eden, God 
he would appear to them on Mount Sinai. And then from Mount Sinai, he would appear in the tabernacle and then in the temple. In other words, these were places where God was really present. Yes, God is, he is everywhere all at once, but there have been places throughout the Old Testament where he would, as it were, really be present. And it would be in these places. What was interesting is that the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, here's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. He is saying that the tabernacle and the temple, it was a copy of the heavenly reality. So listen to this. When the veil is pulled back here in this random field with these lowly shepherds, this is not a copy. This is the heavenly temple. What this is showing here is that the Messiah who has come, the baby who is born, has come from the heavenly temple. He's come from the center of it. He's come from the throne. That's who we're talking about. It's the Yahweh of the Old Testament. That's who this highest king is. But where does he come to? Look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day where? In the city of David. As Jason preached last week, we saw in chapter 2 verse 4 what the city of David was. It's called Bethlehem. So he's coming to Bethlehem. But you do have to ask the question, why does he come specifically there? Once again, why not go to Rome? Why not appear on Caesar's you know, doorsteps right there? He goes to Bethlehem. It's the city of David and it has a purpose. Micah 5 2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. What is this saying? Where does he come to and what does it say about him? According to Micah 5 2, who is this child? He is the one who brings redemptive reversal. He is the one who has come to exalt the lowly and lower the exalted. He is the one who has come from eternity past. He is the one who will be the true and better King David. Amen? Church, you tracking with me this morning? Come on now, I used to play sports, so I want to... He's come to this particular city for this, or this particular town for this particular purpose, that you would see that this is the true king. This is not a king, this is the king. But what does he come for? You see it also in verse 11, actually with these next three titles that it gives him, it calls him a savior, it calls him a Christ, and it calls him a Lord. What does it mean that he's a savior? Well, obviously savior means to save someone from something. Jesus, this baby, this highest king, he is the one who would save his people from their sins and God's wrath. That's what he's doing. I love it how the angel of the Lord, how he declares this. He declares this as if there has never been a proper savior before him. 
You see that? He's saying this. You have never been able to save yourselves. You've never been able to do it. But now, finally, there is a Savior, and only one, and He's here for you. My friends, can I tell you something? Please, stop trying to save yourself. Stop. Because there is a Savior who's here to save you. He is the Christ. Christ is not His last name. It is not... The name is Christ, Jesus Christ. That's not it. Christ is a title. It means that he is the anointed one. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one who has been divinely anointed from on high. And in the Old Testament, we would see people who would be anointed. They would either be high priest or they would be kings. Here's the thing about Jesus. He'd be both. Matter of fact, he is prophet, priest, and king all at the same time. And when he is anointed, you see this at his baptism, that when he is anointed, he is not anointed just like everyone else in the Old Testament. He is anointed without end. No one is more anointed than him. And everyone else who had been anointed for God's plan of redemption in the Old Testament, it was all looking forward to him who would be the true anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the one who would carry out God's plan of redemption. And that means that he's done two things considering he is a priest and he is a king. Since he is a priest, here's what he's come to do. He has come to atone for your sins. I think it's so interesting that in the context of the glory of the Lord appearing and thinking about the temple, that then you hear about the Christ who is the anointed one, who would actually be like the priest who would go into the temple to offer the sacrifice before God. My friends, the great high priest has come. But he is not just a priest, he is also the sacrifice. He's come to represent us so that we don't have to. He's come to be the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. As the king, he has come to deliver us from sin, Satan, and death. He's come to establish his kingdom that will actually bring true prosperity and peace. That's what it's saying about him. It also says that he's come to be the Lord. My friends, you and I do not make him Lord. He is the Lord. There is this idea today about <laughs> lordship salvation where you can embrace Christ as your Savior, but then you make him your Lord. My friends, you don't make Jesus Christ anything. He is what he is. You either believe who he is or not. He is the Lord. The question is, are you living in light of it or not? But here's one thing it says about the Lord. In Jeremiah 23, verse 6, it says, in, the, in, in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And listen to this. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. When it says that this is the Lord, it's not just saying that he's the king, that he's the sovereign, that he's the God of the Old Testament. It is him who is the Lord. He will be your righteousness you do not have to earn your own. Amen?
If you are a believer, listen to this. If you are a believer, when you receive Christ, you receive his righteousness. You receive the righteousness of the Lord. There is no higher value to that righteousness. If you, a finite being, lived a perfect life and could somehow have earned perfection, it would not compare to the value of righteousness that you have in Jesus Christ. It is of infinite worth. It is of infinite value. And it is given to you. The idea today of be your best self. My friends, you will never be your best self. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, I'm sorry. But rather the gospel says this, look away from you trying to be your best self and look to Christ. Because that is how you are renewed. See, this type of king, he doesn't need the help of influencers. He doesn't need the help of politicians or our platforms. He is a God who comes to us. He is the God who delights to use us. And it is all by grace. My friends, the highest king has come to lowly creatures. But how? That's not just who he is, but how has this king come to us? Well, we see here, Look at verse 10, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here it is. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a very strong, well-fit adult. Right? Someone who is already fully mature and doesn't have to live the life we have to live. Nope. A baby. And a baby in swaddling cloths, which by the way would be very lowly material, born in a feeding trough, which is what would a manger be. He came to us in a manner like us. That's how he's come. This highest king would be a child who would begin at the moment of conception by the power of the Holy Spirit. He assumed the most humiliating state to save any person from any state that they could be in. He was not born into a royal family. He was born into poverty. And why? Well, Hebrews, again, is helpful here. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things. My friends, Jesus Christ, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the God who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator, took on a true body and a reasonable soul. Why did he do it? I love what... Our Westminster Larger Catechism says he does, he does it for a couple of things. One, to advance our nature because we cannot advance ourselves. To perform obedience to the law because we can never earn it. To suffer for us because it was too much for us to take. To make intercession for us in our nature because we cannot plead our own case. To have a fellow feeling of our infirmities. Someone who would know us as we are to grant us adoption as sons of God, 
so that we can have someone to rely on, someone who would never fail us, to have an entire person represent us. That's why he took on flesh. He was born into poverty. We actually see that from tradition that is very reliable that he, he would have lost his father. His mother, because of the virgin birth, because obviously it's a miracle, obviously virgins don't give birth. So his mother would have been seen as an adulterer, and he, Jesus, would have been seen as an illegitimate child. He was a lowly carpenter. He was homeless at one point. He was even misunderstood by friends and family. My friend, Jesus Christ went through all these things. And he perfectly earned your righteousness the entire time. Amen? We often can say this. Well, the reason why I sinned is because I was in these certain circumstances or because so-and-so did something to me. My friends, no one was in worse circumstances than Jesus Christ. And the moment that we excuse our sin because of what someone else has done to us, although they really have done that thing, but we as sinners tend to respond sinfully to being sinned against. But the moment we excuse our sin, the moment we water down our sin is the moment we also, by implication, water down the righteousness of Jesus Christ for us. Don't do that. He has come for you. But yet you do have to ask the question, why a child? Why can't he just come down just to die? Why not a, a for, fully formed adult? See, Christ has to go through every phase of life from conception to adulthood or else he cannot save you. He has to be like us in every single way yet without sin. So he must go through every stage. The law... Here's why he has to be a child as well. The law does not just condemn those who sin, but the law still demands a positive righteousness. You see, Jesus can't just show up on the scene and just immediately go to the cross and then say, we're done. He must live positively obeying God's law because that is the righteousness that you wear. He must live perfectly. Those first 29, 30 odd, or maybe 31 odd years of his life where not much is recorded, he was changing the world because he was quietly, surely, and in a lowly way, earning righteousness. And that's what we have. Joel Beakey says the core of Christ's redeeming accomplishment is his obedience to the Father's will. But you have to ask the question what kind of obedience was this? Love what John Murray says. To be an act of obedience, here's what it needs to be. The motive, direction, disposition, volition, and purpose must all be in conformity to God's will. What does that mean? Here's what it means. In every single act of Jesus Christ from conception to death, he loved and he had to. He loved the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, never wavering once. He could not just do an act, he must desire to do the act. 
He says that it is, in John 4, that it is his, it is his food to do the Father's will. You know what that means for you and me? It means when we do not desire to follow God, we don't have to sit there and just wallow in condemnation, dear friend. Because you will never have the perfect desires, but he did. And that's the righteousness that is given to you. Amen? In every stage of his life, amidst any condition, no matter what suffering he endured, no matter what sin was committed against him, no matter how overbearing others how overbearing others might have been he earned this and he earned it for you last night Knox was in bed and on his bed is this blanket that is made up of a lot of graces uh, old shirts and jerseys and as he's laying in bed uh, he was asking whose shirts these were, and I was like, well, those are mommy's shirts. And he goes, they're mine now. <laughs> no, they're, they're your mom's. But in a sense, he was really getting at something. Little did he know. You didn't know two-year-olds could be theologians, right? Because they are his mom's shirts, but now they're on him. It is not your righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness on you. But here's the thing, it is so in your possession that you will never be able to think about yourself accurately unless you also think about the righteousness of Christ. Can I give you just a little bit of Wilson opinion here, not a thus says the Lord, but this is one of the downfalls of some modern personality tests today. I know they get us so excited. And there can be some fun stuff we learn from those. I'm not just saying like do away with it totally. But here's one thing. You're never going to see yourself totally as you are with merely one of those personality tests because you're leaving out more than half the picture. Christ's righteousness for you. Amen? When the angels appear in verse 13 and 14, they're these sweet little precious cherub babies and they're saying, glory to God. Right? That's, what it, that's what's happening there. Now, actually, when it says a multitude of the heavenly host, it means an army. And it is less singing like that. That was terrible singing. It was a war cry. What is happening here? I can't imagine what these shepherds are thinking. Not just another night, just, you know, following our, our little flock and trying to get them to go from point A to point B. Bam! You know? An army appears around them. And they're crying out saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. Among those with whom he is pleased. Deuteronomy 20 verse 4 says, For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. My friends, what this is declaring to us is that you do not have to try to win the war. It's been won for you. This is the type of king who comes down to his people rather than waiting for them to come to him. It's the type of king who cares so much for the lowly that he goes as low as it takes. That's the type of king, the highest king, who has come to the lowest creatures. 
But how should we respond? I think we see a couple things here. First off, look at verse 10. Notice that the angel, his first words there are fear not. Notice when you read your Bible that either on behalf of God or from God himself, that his most frequent command is fear not. Why should you not fear? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news, my friends, not good advice. Good news of great joy, not good advice for a little bit of joy if you fulfill the advice. It is good news of great joy for all people, not good advice with a little bit of joy only for the people who fulfill it. It is good news of great joy for all the people. My friends, good advice focuses on you. Good news focuses on him. Good advice is the law. Good news is grace. What is so ironic today is in modern Western Christianity, and you could also say just throughout the world, many who might call themselves evangelicals, which is actually the, where we get, the, we get evangelicals from the Greek word euangelion, which is good news. That's the connection there. Ironically, people who are supposed to be good news people, how often are these sermon series and Bible studies and these messages about, here's five ways where you can have a better life. Do you not see how exhausted people are today? We do not need any more good advice. And the moment that we change good news for good advice, we do not have great joy, and it is not for all the people. It's only for the people who earn it, but then even the people who earn it, they're never really satisfied. My friends, we need good news because we can't do it. We need good news because we're never going to be those people. But good news is way better than good advice. I love, once again, what Tim Keller says. The gospel is not primarily a way of life. Please hear that. The gospel is not primarily a way of life. It's not something we do, but something that has been done for us and something we must respond to. The gospel is good news for helpless and needy and lowly sinners who cannot get their act together. Listen to me, church. You cannot get your act together. Parents, you should know this about yourselves because you can't get your kids' act together. I cannot even get our dog Heidi's act together. How do I expect to get mine together? And that's the thing. You can never get your act together, but there's a Savior who got his act together. And that is your righteousness. Hallelujah, right? Come on now. When we abandon the good news for good advice, we're only going to fear. And we're going to fear in a sinful way, not a godly way. What we will do as a church is we'll constantly be looking around saying, what else do we need to do? We're not doing enough. We can never rest. But the good news helps us to be still and know that He is God. And that actually promotes gracious mission. Here's a second way we need to respond. We need to respond, dear Christian, with assurance. Don't miss 
the second two of the first three words in verse 11. Look back at verse 11. Do not miss this. Let me encourage you, circle that, underline it, box it, whatever you do. Highlight it, post-it note it, I don't care. For unto you. My friends, one of the hardest things is for the Christian to believe that God's grace is really for them. That's why we often need other people. Someone like a John Quasney in my life who I could just walk into his office over and over again back in Jackson, Mississippi, and I would just say, just please tell me again. Sometimes he would have to be, you know, be like God in Genesis 32 when the angel of the Lord's wrestling with Jacob, and he would have to be like, hey, you need to believe this. Because it's hard to believe. Often we think we're too sinful. We're too far off. We're too dirty. We're too lowly. There's too much in our past. But the gospel says that it is for you. My friends, this is what the Lord's Supper is. That for the believer, and only for the believer, the bread and the wine are declaring to you that Christ is for you. Don't come to this table saying, well, if I can use Jesse, I love you, Jesse. Well, he might be for Jesse, but he's not for me. My friends, who do you think you are to say that? He is for you. He is for anyone, no matter how far off they are, no matter what they have in their life. He has come for you. His righteousness outweighs your sin. We also need to come see him. We actually see this when the shepherds respond. Look at verse 15. They said to one another, hey, let's go to Bethlehem. Well, I would think so after that. And for some of you, you need to come see him. Maybe you've never seen him before. Maybe you know about him. Maybe you've grown up in the church. Maybe you've even been baptized, but you haven't seen him. And I'm not talking about physically seeing him. I'm talking about seeing him as the Bible talks about it, which is seeing by faith. My friends, do you believe him? But we also need to help others come see him. God loves to use lowly people in this way. You might be scared to death to get an evangelistic conversation with someone. But you can at least say this, come and see. We also need to do this, don't just come and see, but come and worship. Notice that the shepherds did not come to be entertained, they came to worship. Jesus is not a sidekick, he's not a resume booster, he's not a means to an end. He is the means and the end. And like Mary in verse 19, we need to come and treasure him. Treasure him for who he is. Treasure him for his grace. Treasure him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And my friends, as you treasure him, go and tell others. God loves to use churches like the one in Clio, Alabama. Remember Grace? In summer of 2016, I preached about 12 sermons to this town of, I don't even know how many people, in Clio, Alabama, and they were so gracious to have me, and they were so eager to hear the preaching of the gospel, but it was not very good preaching. But that church, when, there's never more than 30 people there for one sermon. Sometimes there's as low as eight because there's a family reunion. 
few people have ever listened to the gospel more eagerly than them. My friends, don't ever think God is too low, or that you are too lowly for God to do great things through you. Matter of fact, that's where he loves to go. In 1838, after a strong emancipation movement, slavery was finally abolished in Jamaica, and it would take effect on August 1st of that year. And on the evening of the last day in July, because August is the next day, a large company of former slaves gathered on the beach for a solemn yet joyous occasion. A large mahogany coffin had been constructed and placed on the sand next to a giant hole in the beach. All evening, the soon-to-be-emancipated slaves placed in the coffin symbols of their enslavement. There were chains, leg irons, whips, padlocks, and other symbols of slavery. A few minutes before midnight came, the coffin was lowered into that hole in the beach. And while they pushed the sand over the coffin, they all joined their voices and sang together as we will sing in a second. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The highest king has come for the lowest creatures. Believe that and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our king, we do look to you. We look to you as the only one who could atone for our sins, and we have many. But we look to you also as the one who earned our righteousness, because we have none. As we have heard your word, do what your word says. And send us forth responding to good news rather than just to find the latest good advice. 